Welcome in, listeners, to a joint uh, podcast episode of the Busby Babe podcast and We Ain't Got No Podcast. I'm joined with uh, Jimmy Funnel, Ram Shrinivas, and Polly Questel. Uh, Jimmy and Ram, of course, of We Ain't Got No Podcast. Uh, how are you guys, boy? How you guys doing after this uh, FA Cup semifinal victory? I think we're all buzzing. I mean, welcome everyone. Also from We Ain't Got No Podcast side, uh, we're all buzzing. Uh, I, mean, I think I speak for every Chelsea fan at the moment. Just on and off the pitch, it's not bad. It's not bad being a Chelsea fan right now. Or am I wrong, Ram? <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I'm I'm not gonna complain. It's also uh, pretty nice to be talking to my favorite Hibs fan yet again, and <laughs> and also Polly, who I haven't spoken to for. So that's cool. That's uh, can't wait to get cracking. It's nice to be talking to you guys too. Though maybe I'm I re- reserve the right to change that opinion in like 35 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, Polly and I, so on our the last episode of the Busby Babe podcast, we talked a little bit about this game, um, but we're really looking forward to this conversation just to kind of get a Chelsea perspective and maybe a more positive perspective of this game than just us looking at the massive mistakes that Manchester United uh, made that uh, wound up costing us. Well, we can give you that, yeah, no problem. <laughs> just, I mean, I said we're we're buzzing, and there were lots of positives to take away from that game from Chelsea perspective. I, I I'd actually even argue, and I'm sure we'll be able to talk about that a little bit later as well. Uh, that there were a few positives for Man United as well. I mean, banter, you know, just forgetting about the banter for a second here. I mean, you've got one hell of a team, uh, maybe just a few pieces left, and then. You'll be competing at the front just like us. But generally speaking, uh, the game, I just, I was quite bamboozled by the energy that we brought to that game. The pressing, um, the whole team was just fantastic. Even those that haven't been performing as well as they should do normally uh, in recent times. So that was, it was just the best example of how Chelsea should be going into these last two games that we have this upcoming week, which are two finals. I think it's the same for you guys, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I was just ecstatic after that game, without doubt. Lots of men of the matches. Men of the matches, sorry. Men of the match, blimey. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was um, an interesting setup, I thought, from Manchester United to kind of I mean, there was no way he, that Solskjaer knew that whether Lampard was going to go with the back four or the wing back setup. But uh, Manchester United going with three center backs, which is uh, abnormal for us, um, I thought in the first half worked out okay, uh, kind of isolating Giroud on Harry Maguire, who's our strongest defender. Um, but yeah, things uh, quickly fell apart after the first 40 minutes or so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a deal breaker uh, for United then shortly before the break and then after the break. That's kind of a sucker punch that very few teams will be able to come back from, to be fair. So, yeah, I mean, Olivier Giroud, I'm just going to quickly start with him before, you know, of course, uh, all the others say something on the game. But Olivier Giroud is just such a model professional. I 
cannot start to tell you how much I love this guy. And that, despite him being Arsenal for such a long time, he is just such a hard worker. I think he's actually one of a dying breed in the Premier League. You don't get really that kind of a striker nowadays. You can just ping everything off him. He'll link up play. He is deadly with his left uh, with his left foot. And, I mean, he really made De Gea look old, not himself, on that first goal. It was just an instinctive uh, goal. Uh, just that's what you really want from your striker. Yeah, he is really kind of a dying breed a bit because he is one of the few get-the-ball-in-the-box-onto-his-head strikers left in the game. And it's not like he can't do anything else. You know, like you mentioned, you can bounce ball, you can ping balls off of him. He can play in that hold-up play role. Like we saw him be excellent for France. There, he was the one of the keys to them winning the World Cup. Even though he wasn't doing the other scoring the goal striker bits. And it's it's kind of weird how we haven't gotten anybody since, or other than Giroud, who manages to combine those two elements so perfectly into one player oh yeah definitely definitely i mean he's not the kind of youth player that you'd normally know like tammy abraham i mean uh, when when we talk about youth it's all about ram of course uh, for us on the podcast because ram's our youth expert uh but i think even even you saw so that olivier Giroud. i mean the experience he brings to the game and I said this this kind of old striker genre that we have barely any of nowadays anymore it's just something that we really needed and we didn't know that we need it and if we had started using him more at the start of the season or throughout the season um, maybe we wouldn't have lost as many games because we would have had a a plan B, so to speak, but what could have been generally Olivier Giroud is kind of a puzzle, uh, a part of a puzzle that we was missing for the most of the season, and he really showed that again. He'll make a pretty good, um, he'll probably be the world's best third choice striker next season, so that's uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty cool, I guess. <laughs> now, uh, I mean, in all seriousness, uh, he. He was pretty massive, and uh, he he really showed his class in creeping near that near post to just sneak it past to here for the first goal. And in general, I think I was um, I wasn't expecting Man United to set up with the with three at the back, and I think having Brandon Williams who doesn't provide same sort of natural width as Luke Shaw on the left side, kind of limited you guys a bit. And I think having Reese James and Aspilicueta gave us a lot of a lot of the edge on that side as well because we were kind of implementing this pseudo Sheffield United-esque overlapping centre back. That that whole thing was going on on the right side, which. Um, caused some very favorable overlords and eventually it was how uh, Aspi went on to assist the first goal but I was um, generally my thoughts on the game um, I mean I'm not sure if you guys agree with this but I was 
kind of surprised at United being, I mean, kind of tame because I think Chelsea weren't weren't there, probably weren't their swashbuckling selves either, which is probably why they set up with a 3-4-3 in the first place. But uh, the, the United that I have kind of gotten used to, well, watching and reading about in recent times with a very exciting attack and Bruno, Bruno Fernandes and all that. That was a... That I feel I feel as if that United kind of didn't turn up against us. So, I mean, what, what do you guys think really went yeah. on? Well, United, they didn't... They weren't their swashbuckling selves, and I think a lot of that was because Chelsea didn't let them be that... I thought it was through, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but it, they, they played a very negative game in that whenever United were trying to break out, they were just fouling, especially Bruno Fernandez and everything. And that's part of, you know, part of that's on United. Mike Dean wasn't giving out yellow cards to say, hey, cut it out. And United weren't hounding him to say, hey, that's two times, that's three times. Uh, where's the booking here? They were doing it in a very good way in that, you know, they they were always making sure that United players were facing their own net when they were fouled, so it didn't look like tactical fouls. And you know, kudos, you know, kudos to Lampard. Like if if this was my team and we won a big semifinal game playing that way, I'd have no problem with it. I have a problem with it if we were playing like this week in, week out. But in a semifinal or a final, when you know it's just win and get to the next and get to the final or win the trophy, you do what you have to do to win that game and. And those were half-decent tactics by Lampard to uh, stop United from getting on the front foot like United like to do. Um, and United, the only thing that they, if, if, if a referee is going to let it happen, then, you know, if you're Chelsea, then don't stop. And if you're United, then you should be hounding the referee and saying, I mean, this is getting ridiculous. And they weren't doing that either. So they, they brought it upon themselves. Yeah, I guess I guess so. And just speaking of that, it kind of reminds me of how some people say the Lampard is actually more of a Mourinho disciple than he realizes, or than we realize rather. We said the same thing about Solskjaer too. <laughs> yeah, it all just kind of links back to Mourinho, isn't it? Very, very influential manager of this current generation. But like uh, another thing that kind of I took away from watching you guys was. Um, it seems like we're not the only we're not the only team that really needs a new left back in the summer because w- wouldn't you say that it kind of kind of hinders your own width playing like a right-footed guy as your backup to Luke Shaw because Luke Shaw being Luke Shaw if he gets injured for a very long time then I don't know that that doesn't really look good for you does it? Just before Ram. the answer, sorry before yeah. the answer, <laughs> says as Piliqueta says otherwise. Just just putting that out there. <laughs> but. Okay. Have you been reading my tweets? Uh, that was exactly what I what I said the other day. I said like Brandon Williams is a great player, but in terms of the system United play, they very much need a left-footed player out there. And the the reason that their three at the back system has worked most of the year is because the left center back has either been Luke Shaw or it's been Marcos Rojo, and they've made underlapping runs, which helps as they are both left-footed, and that's helped. Yesterday, it was Victor Lindelof, who was also right-footed. So, yeah, you're right. Um, I tweeted this morning, like, it's 
given all the other needs that the club has, it's a little ridiculous to say they need to sign a left back, but they definitely need someone, a left-footed guy, in case Luke Shaw does get hurt. And I'm not much of a Luke Shaw fan anyway, so I've kind of had left back on our priority needs for the last year or so. But, um, yeah, I, I think that and probably center back got a little bit exposed uh, depth-wise um, this year uh, in, in this game. Well, I mean, we're not, as you already said, we're not the only ones that need a left back. And I actually have to say that I thought Marcus Alonso played reasonably well, actually, against Manchester United, which just goes again down the line that in the three at the back, Marcus Alonso just works very well. Uh, but revert back to a four at the back and it just doesn't work. And uh, that's Bro, just I was, I was just going to ask, do you think it has to do with him playing wing back and oh, being definitely. able to get forward more and have less defensive mm. responsibility? Absolutely, because that extra man at the back just always helps him out. I mean, to be fair, Mateo Kovacic does a lot working uh, back as well. Uh, it just It just really, really works well when he has this freedom. I can't count on two hands. Well, I probably could, but just overemphasize this here, how often he was actually up front when you saw, oh, okay, everyone was back and the quick ball up front to Olivier Giroud. Oh, who's there? It's Marcus Alonso. He's just that kind of guy who really loves to stroll forward. It's like when we play amateur football, uh, you're always, oh, I can't, I can't anymore. My stamina's gone. But if your teammates get the ball, suddenly you can run again and you want to score a goal and you run up front. And that's what Marcus Alonso does. But getting back, that's such a big problem with him. And uh, in a three, with a three, as one could see against Man United, that wasn't really as much of a problem. Um, and if we're going to do this and we're going to use this three at the back more often than not, then we really have to keep him because there are these these, these rumours. Oh, we should sell both our current left backs and then get two new ones. I just think that's not the right way to do it. I mean, we need a new left back. I think you guys need a new left back. Um, left backs f for everyone. But there's, it's generally, I thought he, he had a very good game. Um, and that pressure that we could always put on you because we had someone like Marcus Alonso who is quite a threat airily and with the ball at his feet um he, he put you quite a bit under pressure as well maybe didn't come to as many chances as we normally were accustomed to with Marcus Alonso but generally I think he really did um put a lot of pressure on on your players uh yeah I've, I feel like and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong I feel like Marcos Alonso is almost a player out of time a bit in that if he would have came around 15 years ago, it would have been really easy to look at him and say, right, we're just going to almost like Gareth Bale. We're just going to move you to the left wing <laughs> the way the game yeah. was played back then. Uh, but now, you know, you know, when you have players like Christian Pulisic and all and Ziyech coming in and Timo Werner and all the other different guys that could play and, and the way that the modern left winger is not really so much of a left winger, but more of just a left forward. Um, He's he's kind of, to me he's kind of just too left-footed to to play that role and and it leaves them in this 
we could real, you know, as a left back, he's he exposes us defensively too much, and you could, and he really shoehorns himself into really only being useful mm. when you play him in that back three as a wing back. I mean, the thing is, it's funny that you say that because when Chelsea was having problems scoring and the goals were drying up in January about where Olivier Giroud wasn't being played, Tammy Abraham wasn't scoring anymore, we were in a bit of a slump. People were generally larking around, oh, we should put Marcus Alonso up front because he at least scores goals. And I mean, I'm not quite sure if everyone meant it seriously. I was saying it in jest, but then you thought, well, actually he can score goals. It has been contemplated. It's not going to happen. But I agree with you that he is also, despite only being 29, a player that had he been playing in the early 2000s, he would have excelled there on that left wing without doubt. Uh, nowadays, you need the pacey wingers. Uh, you need the technique, that cut inside. That's not Marcus Alonso's game because cutting inside his right leg, or his right foot, isn't good. He hates to use it, so that doesn't really work from the left wing. It might work from the right wing, but you need the pace for that, and he doesn't have that. So he's more like a um, this this battering ram that comes in, and he only gets that freedom as a left wing back. Would he play on the left wing? He would be marked. It wouldn't be as easy for him to make space for himself. And that's the problem, because if you have this overlapping wing back that comes barging in, who's marking him? He's just come from the opposite side of the field. Whether there's enough discipline of the winger to actually cover him the entire time of your of the opposing winger, doubtful. So that's a major part of Marcus Lanza's game that probably wouldn't work nowadays as much anymore. Sorry, I've been talking too much. Another events of Sheffield United does it very effectively. No, please go on. Sorry. I was just going to say another player that I thought looked pretty effective for you guys and has been good in recent weeks has been Willian. Um, And I was wondering what the two of you thought about uh, (laughs) his situation uh, currently at the club and uh, his contract renewal or not contract renewal. That was my preemptive reaction to what you were going to ask me. And yeah, I knew it was going to be about the contract renewal. I mean, obviously, but um, yeah, no, he can, he can, he can move on. I think. Uh, I, I don't mean to sound too harsh because he's obviously done. He's done a job for this club, and he's shown up at times where other people haven't shown up, such as the entire 2015-16 season. <laughs> and but. It's just, uh, I feel as if we've reached the end of the road with William. He, at this point, him and his agent, they want, they want a three-year deal as well, which is quite, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. At How this, old is he uh, again? Um, I think he's he's turning thirty now. Uh, he's, uh, he's thirty-one. He's, he's, he's 31, going to turn yeah. thirty-two. He's oh, going to turn thirty-two is... in like two weeks. So. Three-year deal is that's beyond. Ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I have at that. I, I mean. Personally, I, I wouldn't give him anything more than more than the one. But uh, yeah, I, at this point, I just don't think it's worth it because next season, who are you really heading, headed into the season with? You you have uh, you have Christian Pulisic, obviously, and Warner, who can play out wide, Mason Mount, who can play out wide, and then you have Hakim Ziyech, Callum Hudson Odoi, and at, at that point, does it really matter? Do you really need? another player on like huge money who's probably going to go past his physical peak uh, sooner than we think, even though he does look 
pretty good at times now. But yeah, he's <laughs> he's not been a bad player at all, and he he probably he's probably still got like another season of Premier League football in him, but. It just doesn't doesn't make sense. We've we made attacking reinforcements, and there are young players waiting to fill the gap that he's going to leave. And yeah, he's a good good player by all means. He'd probably do a job at a good level for like another couple of seasons. But just it's just not not for me, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the main problems that Chelsea fans have with William is that. If he's under pressure, for example, a new winger comes in and he becomes this lion, as he was once quoted, or he's playing for this new contract, he actually plays very well and gives it his all. But when he's in a position of comfort, he slacks off and everyone always lords his work rate. And he does have that in him, no doubt. But he just doesn't always show. And then if something doesn't go his way, he just puts his hands up in the air and then and just walks. He just walks. And that when... A team's countering because he loses the ball on the edge of our penalty box after, for example, we've cleared the corner. And he just he stops playing. He just that's that's something extremely infuriating with him. And uh that kind of also reflects in how he's been off the pitch with the whole Conte fiasco and now with him not barging from this this three year deal because Chelsea were actually reportedly giving him two years, which is also very good at nearly thirty two years old, let's be honest. Um but he just says no. He wants his three-year deal. He's very stubborn in that respect. And for everything that he has done for us, and he's been really great since the restart, I has to say it's time to go. Thank you for everything. That's it. Maybe he wants to go to Man United. I think it would have been more realistic with Mourinho still there. But if he goes to Tottenham, that would destroy the song, but it would still be quite a fun thing to see him there. I'm sure Mourinho will give him a three-year deal. Yeah, he'll offer Harry Kane in a swap deal for William. <laughs> of course he will, because then three years they'll have them him there, but he'll be gone in half a year. So right, <laughs> it would be great for everybody else if if Tottenham gave him a three year deal. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I mean, he polarizes. You know, you you have a lot of players like that. Phil Jones, for example, was one who had quite a bit of talent in him, but I don't know, <laughs> Luke Shaw probably as well. Not, you know, not as much as Phil Jones maybe, but then again, I'm, I haven't got that much insight. But Williams, that kind of player, some like him, some hate him. Yeah, I think he's also in, uh, as two clubs that are going through this sort of uh, rebuilding process and trying to get back to what they once were. Chelsea had a period of success not that long ago, and they still have this sort of old guard of players, you know, with him and Azpilicueta, and they got rid of Gary Cahill not long ago. And I, I guess Angola Conte qualifies as part of that too, but I think he's, or folks would say that he's still much more useful than Willian is. But um, yeah, some of the hard decisions is having to decide which which of these players that you want to keep and which ones have to go. And it's probably a bit harder with the more recent era of success at Chelsea than with Manchester United deciding who stays and who goes. Mm. Okay, can I ask you guys uh, from a Manchester United point of view what you thought of Mateo Kovacic's performance because he was arguably our man of the match from my point of view. Um, okay. Questionable, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of yeah. men of the match, but yeah. he was one of the standout performers. Anyway, please. I mean, especially for the first half, uh, it's 
pretty clear that Chelsea were able to dominate midfield. Um, I think part of that is Manchester United setup. I think Nemanja Matic was kind of overloaded with responsibility, just trying to, you know, stabilize any Manchester United possession and try and keep the ball. But um, yeah, Chelsea did a really good job early on, just kind of taking over that part of the pitch. And it wasn't until late when we were chasing the game that we actually got forward and created meaningful chances from build-up play. Yeah, I, I think I I did a probably a crap job of watching the game because I was really just watching us. I like Mateo Kovacic and really thought he was a good signing for when when you guys signed him. I just, to me, it was United's midfield couldn't do anything and they couldn't progress the ball and, and Chelsea maintained possession, which granted... He's your deep midfielder. That's exactly what his job is. His job is almost to be anonymous. So if the fact that Chelsea are controlling the ball, controlling the midfield, then yeah, he's playing a fantastic game. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not sure if it was him or Jorginho, but I think when it was still 1-0, or maybe it was 2-0 by then, but I want to say one of them had a couple decent, decent looks from outside the box as well. Probably wasn't Jorginho then. <laughs> just saying <laughs> no I think it was actually Kovacic but he, those surging runs where he just the drop of the shoulder and then that change of pace where he just cruised past your entire midfield and um, some say Mate- Nemanja Matic is washed up nowadays that we're glad that we shipped him off but I still think there's a player in there and he's shown that recently um, but there's there's definitely a player in there, but like let's not pretend it's not hard to just run right by him. <laughs> he, always, he always has been. Jimmy, do you remember that time when he got absolutely embarrassed by Fabian Delph? Yeah, goal, like the goal of the yeah, season. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was with Matic. It was always the kind of thing. He's such a. He looks so physically imposing and he's huge, but he just never uses his physicality as much as he should be doing. Um, but still, you know, I, f- I still thought it's not easy to get, you know, just past that midfield that you have. Bruno Fernandes is a hard worker as well. And Kovacic did a very good job there, I thought. It was quite threatening um, transitioning from that at the back to the front. Um, yeah. I know this isn't Chelsea and we were saying about Chelsea, but I, 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 we have to talk about De Gea here a bit. Also, yeah. because we share this problem because our goalkeeper has been a problem for us as well <laughs> austin <laughs> spain <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, he is uh, actually really yeah. good and there's that there's that henderson guy who's playing at sheffield united i don't think he's 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 all that so they should probably just sell him to i don't know clubs who need keepers like chelsea but <laughs> he is like he's really good so he, he should probably just stay at united he's got a really nice contract as well so there's really no incentive for them to keep henderson that, yeah, that, that's my two cents anyway. Compilation videos on YouTube too, with lots of really good highlights. <laughs> Andreas Pereira has a really good compilation video on YouTube too, so you gotta yeah, thirty seconds. You gotta be careful of what you see there. <laughs> well, what do you think about Dean Henderson? Will he play at Manchester United next season? Um, I'm gonna go ahead and say yes. Um, not just because he's playing well, but because now there is pressure on Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer to make a decision uh, here. I'm not sure that he's going to be given the starting job or be trusted with a large stretch of matches uh, right away, but I 
would expect to see him in cup games um, and maybe the odd Premier League game against somebody that we're supposed to beat. Yeah, I keep reading that they, they are going to try to ship him off on loan again. I hope he sticks around. You give him the cup games and maybe um, six to eight Premier League games and enough to put the pressure on De Gea. And then if you're if he's playing in the cups and maybe if, if United finish and make it to the Champions League and you split the group stage games... Um, and you give him some early Premier League action, that could be enough to push De Gea that, and enough of a sample that if his performance is better than De Gea's, you can eventually make the switch, or you're, you know, you wake up De Gea and he holds him off and retains the number one spot, in which case that's good for United too. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that mm-hmm. <laughs> something awakens De Gea at some point. It's, uh I mean, I, I've defended him a lot, and actually, during this game on Sunday, I was texting one of my friends who's kind of been pointing out De Gea's decline for a while, and I was saying that you know, that first goal wasn't necessarily entirely his fault. It was pretty close to him. It was mostly a Brandon Williams mistake and Victor Lindelof not getting the better of Giroud. Giroud gets a touch on the ball, and it's very close to De Gea. He gets something on it, but it's not enough to save it. And right as I sent that text, uh, Mason Mount launches one, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. De Gea pushes it into his the corner of his net. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I said this on our podcast yesterday. It started with just a horrific giveaway from Brandon Williams to the point, as soon as he gave it away, I said, this is going to be 2-0, because that's the type of giveaway that just always ends up in the back of your net. So when Mount scored, I was not surprised at all. And then I, you know, upon watching the replay, it was just, oh my, oh my Lord. Like, yeah, Williams made this really bad mistake, but David De Gea, like, that's one where your goalkeeper needs to bail you out and clean it up Mm. for you. And that, not doing that was just, it was awful. And somebody who we've come to expect us to bail us out in those situations because we've seen him do it so many times before. And it's not like he's, 37 30 he's not on the gg buffon level of deterioration you know he's just been made the highest paid goalkeeper in the world um you know he's spain's number one or maybe not anymore but he's coming off what i guess 18 19 wasn't great for him either but there was still this expectation that you know at 28 29 he's gonna be a keeper that works through these rough patches and the rough patch he had, just keeps he getting had a really he had a really weird 1819 where his world cup form kind of bled into the beginning of the season and then he got better and almost got back to the level he was at in seventeen eighteen and then something else happened and all of a sudden he dropped even further like his form dropped even lower than it was during the World Cup. It was and that's just carried over now into this season to the point that you're almost like, is this just what David De Gea is now? But it, it was really mm-hmm. weird yeah. how he kind of got himself out of that funk and then fell right back into it, if not further. It, it's almost like Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi both took turns just destroying his confidence after he built it back up again. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's also quite comparable. I mean, I'm not going to compare what David De Gea was in the past or at least until 1819 with Kepa as a but I still think that Kepa was great last season. He showed some real promise. 
and then some things went against him. His confidence got a bit shattered, and now we're here where we are. And that's such a shame because there is a goalkeeper in there. I don't care what people say. Oh, he's so bad, and you should see the comments that come on. We ain't got the history at times about him. It's it's quite saddening, but. I get that if Frank Lampard doesn't want him anymore, then we have to look at different options. But there is a goalkeeper in there, and his confidence is just shattered. And I think there are quite a few parallels that one can draw between De Gea and Kepa, which is, of course, Spain's problem, talking about the national team. But uh, it's quite interesting that this is somewhat a common problem with Spanish goalkeepers. Yeah, I, I actually remember, I think, a similar thing happening with Iker Casillas at Real Madrid when the time finally came for them to move on from him. Of course, they were very decisive in that moment, even though Iker Casillas still had a few years left on him. But, you know, they just didn't tolerate those moments of getting a hand to the ball and it's still getting past him, despite being positioned very well to save it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in your cases, one could say, well, he is... 30s no age for a goalkeeper let's be honest but one can think about okay he's had his great years there maybe we can sell him on but Kepa Arrasabalaga is the most expensive goalkeeper in the world right now he's completely out of form no one's going to pay his wages Chelsea's in a bit of a difficult spot there um well maybe for you with Dean Henderson in your ranks uh, I think you're going to come out of that quite easily well, they'll still have to sit on De Gea's wages, and that could that True. could weigh on the club as well. Although, at this point, I think you look at you look at Gareth Bale, and uh, you just say, you know what? Sometimes you have to eat wages, and it, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world for the team. Mm. Well, I mean, theoretically, wasn't De Gea once at Atletico Madrid? Yes. Oh well, maybe he should go back there, and we'll just take Oblak. No problem. We'll take him. <laughs> totally down with that, right, Ram? Yeah, most of. I mean, I'm I'm kind of, I don't know. I feel burned by the amount of money we had to pay for Kappa. So, unless we can like recoup all of that and then end up paying effectively thirty million more for Oblak, then yeah, that would be okay, I guess. But if we really had to get someone in, I'd probably just go for like um, low risk, high reward kind of keeper like Onana, really. I just, yeah, I'm really skeptical of paying 70 plus million for a keeper who is who has never shown to be dominant in the area and wasn't a particularly good shot stopper, even according to advanced metrics before coming to Chelsea. So the fact that Liverpool signed Allison is another matter because he was uh, markedly better in that regard. But yeah, just. <laughs> I don't know if if I had to choose between getting Oblak and Onana, I'd probably just get Onana because I'm like I'm having a major case of once bitten twice shy. So yeah, that's that. Yeah, really, we all have Liverpool to blame for you know jacking up the prices on all these positional players. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it now, and De Gea's like if you look at the advanced stats, De Gea pre-lockdown has actually been so good he's brought his numbers significantly up which i think is a shock to every united fan uh because they did not seem that way so 
the mistakes are happening, but like, yeah, there's still a there's still a good goalkeeper in there. Yeah, I, I think it doesn't help him to the it, some of these mistakes that have happened in situations where we were not playing well enough to really get a goal at the other end either. Like the Tottenham game when Bergwijn launched that one past him or threw him rather, and especially the Everton game when we conceded that early goal. Yeah, that's been it's been the story of the season is every mistake is magnified because we don't seem to make mistakes when we're up three nil. We only seem to make mistakes when we're either up one nil or it's nil nil and we never respond from the mistake. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's a problem that has been the case for a lot of teams. I mean, look at where we're at. We're in third for I think you guys are fourth right now. Or fifth, uh, we're in that position, not right at the front. Same with Tottenham. No one cares about Arsenal. But, you know, it's just uh, in that kind of a position that the previous top cups are, that they have players that are making a lot of mistakes, um, that one wants to maybe move on, uh, that there's a rebuild. I mean, there's clearly a rebuild taking place at, Man- uh, at Chelsea, right? But I'd say the same with Man United, right? We're in the transition at the moment. Or would you say that you're already further than that, guys? Oh, no, we are still very much in transition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the transition's happening maybe a little bit faster than uh, than you expect. I I thought that United would finish in the top four this year. I I didn't think that, you know, the, the I didn't think Mason Greenwood would be at the level that he's at already. I didn't think... Um, I thought Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial could get to this level, but I, I thought they'd get more from Paul Pogba and uh, defensively they'd be a little bit better. But the transition is definitely still very much happening. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and at the same time, kind of realizing that maybe other positions need to be addressed that we didn't think would need to be addressed. Um Solshire definitely wanted a reliable number 10 that he could run his system through. And we did not have that at the beginning of the season. And, you know, Bruno Fernandez has really elevated everyone around him, but uh, there's, you know, there's not much past him. <laughs> mm. uh, we, we don't want to have to rely on Jesse Lingard and Andreas Pereira. And at the <laughs> same time, I think those are two players that will probably seek playing time somewhere else um, if things continue the way they are. So, um, depth is going to be something we'll have to start recruiting, which is probably harder than just saying that. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, people, because I saw a clip uh, from Jamie Redknapp at the start of the season, he was kept calling people deluded that said that Frank Lampard should be or will end in the top four and in a cup final. Now we're here and it's looking pretty good. No one expected this from Frank Lampard at the start of the season. I think as maybe someone from the outside looking inside now, uh, would you have expected Chelsea to be in this position? Because I think Ram and I had quite a few conversations at the start of the season where it was mixed feelings about this. I mean, Ram's more a positive guy. I'm more of a pessimistic guy. And, uh, you know, opinions went apart majorly across the Chelsea community. It'd be interesting to hear the United perception there. Um, I, I know me personally, I thought that 
it, the top four would be maybe United fourth, Tottenham third, and then Liverpool or City for first and second. Um, so I was very wrong about uh, Tottenham, and I absolutely had no idea that they would go in the Jose Mourinho direction and has comically not worked out for them. But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't really expecting much from Frank Lampard this year. I thought that this would be a year where they sort of accepted their position of not having a transfer window really and give the youth a chance. But um, not only have some of these kids turned out pretty well, but uh, Lampard has found a couple different ways that he can shape his team. And I think he's grown a bit as a manager, but you know, you have to keep in mind that this is only his second full season in charge of a club. Um, and in that respect, it's been pretty impressive from him, I think. I am not surprised Chelsea are there. I I thought it would be Liverpool and City at the top, and then it could be really anybody. Could be three, four, five, six, and not because I thought, oh, they're all really good or any of them are particularly good. I thought they all had question marks. I thought Tottenham were going to come crashing down um, and that they might be in a battle for fourth place. I didn't think Arsenal were going to be that great. And I thought United had talent that they could be in the mix. And Chelsea had talent that they could be in the mix, but I I thought Chelsea had just as many, if if not more, question marks than United did. And I still have those questions. I think they're, they are where they are right now because of how mediocre the league has been, which is the same thing for United. United are still in this race because of the fact that in January when they couldn't get a win or a point... Um, Nobody put them away, you know, like, no, you know, teams were dropping points left and right. And now Leicester just can't buy a point. So it's everybody's kind of let other teams hang around. I am not as high on Frank Lampard. I think he's still living off that five game winning streak that he had at the beginning of the season. I don't know if he's solved all the problems that Chelsea have had since then. Um, Wait, what would you say to the fact that we've won nine of the last 11 games? In all competitions? or That's in all competitions, right? I mean, there was like one FA Cup game in between. Well, there's been two FA Cup games. Okay, fine, two. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I have not known... That I haven't paid attention to. What I have paid attention to is how even when United drop points, Chelsea just don't seem to put them away. Um... That is good. They still, but to me, they still have the same problem that they've had all years. When they have more of the possession, when they have all that possession, they aren't winning a lot of those games. And United had that problem at the beginning of the year. And Chelsea just keep conceding goals when they have so much possession, and they keep conceding goals off of corner kicks. They they concede goals at off corner kicks at a ridiculously high rate. Mm. And I just don't see that Lampard has knows how to figure that part out. Like when Solskjaer took over this United, they had a terrible defense too. And and he has done a lot more than just signing Juan Bissaka and Maguire. There have been tactical things that he's done that have helped the defense out. And I don't see Lampard doing that. And I don't even see him going in the direction of, Hey, let's sign some better defenders because so far, and that's not to say that this won't happen, but so far, Chelsea have signed like three attacking players, two and a third one's coming in in Kai Havertz. They just keep signing attacking players and 
that's a fine strategy of let's outscore the opponents, but that never seems to actually work over the course of a season. Uh, I currently see a lot of Chelsea community members disagreeing with you, but I'm going to actually agree with you there because as much as I love Frank Lampard and he has been fantastic this season, he has yet to prove to us that he can get those defensive frailties and problems um, you know, that he can figure things out there because he hasn't yet. Yes, we've had some great defensive performances, but they've been very few far between. And we need a defensive coach that can really drill that team. And kudos to Oles Gunnar He has been able to stabilize that compared to the Mourinho fiasco that was at the back uh, there for a long time. So that is something that Frank Lampard has to figure out. And I agree with you. Yep. It's it's a harsh reality, but or a harsh truth, but at this moment in time, I wouldn't disagree with you. Uh, I, I might disagree with you that say that we only want to try and outscore uh, because that's not generally the case. We do try to defend, but it's just too messy. School boy mistakes that have been made. And uh, I don't know if it's a coaching thing, if Frank Lampard just isn't, hasn't figured that out. I, I'm, of course, don't have the insights for that, but that's something that has to be addressed. Yeah. And it's, yeah. The, the biggest concern, be... the biggest concern I would have is that um, I saw it on Twitter a few weeks ago. Statsbomb did release. They they did say last season in at Derby County, Derby County had the same problem of conceding a lot of goals on on corners, and it. Obviously, it's only two years, so it's not anything definitive. But it, it, the fact that that problem has has gone from Derby County to Chelsea with Frank Lampard is a bit is something. That if I were a Chelsea fan, I would be concerned about. Yeah, I, I was going to say that I think one thing that we can be certain of is that Lampard will be given the chance to kind of try and right those wrongs. Um, I definitely expected more transfer business on the defensive side of things, but uh, as Polly pointed out, uh, you guys have gone for three really, really nice attacking pieces instead. Um, have you seen much, uh, I guess, rumor-wise about Chelsea looking to bring in defenders or trying to ship anyone out or just anything, trying to switch up things at the back? Not really, actually. It's just been... Um, I think we've really only just been linked strongly to... To Declan Rice, who's uh, primarily been playing as a defensive midfielder um, in the recent few, in the recent past, rather. Although I do remember that his initial appearances for West Ham, including I think uh, one of his very very early appearances against Man City, was as a centre back. So I mean, I do know that he can play both, and I think I think he's a good player, and I think he has. He's a he's a very game wise sort of player. I feel as if he's intelligent and probably probably not the most agile, but he's good on the ball and he he can screen a defense very well. So he definitely fits the six. But then I also feel as if he could make up as a very good centre back option. Although I do realize that it's uh it's not the same as bringing in like a very very good centre back. But the problem is. Which centre backs out there at the moment are realistic for Chelsea and will one hundred percent improve us? It's it's how many good centre backs are even out there right now? Yeah, and then how many yeah, are right. available? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I was 
when I'm when I'm just randomly talking to people, they talk about names like Upamecano and uh, someone like Jose Maria Jimenez at Atletico Madrid. But I just I just don't think that. I mean, for for one, I like I, I love Upamecano personally, but I don't. I, I don't know if uh, he's worth bringing in on top of like a Declan Rice because it seems that they do want Declan Rice a lot. So, um, and someone like Jimenez, on the other hand, is probably not realistic. So it would, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I know Jimmy is a. I think I think Jimmy is a fan of Milan Skriniar at Inter yeah. Milan, but I again, I, I don't know how realistic that is, uh, given Antonio Conte is there and. Yeah, it's just if they're bringing in Declan Rice, it would probably mean that Lampard will have plans to play him as a centre back, based on what I've read and what I've heard. Uh, a centre back as well as a DM, um, depending on needs. So, and you have to consider the fact that they have Tomori, Christensen, Rudiger, and uh, Zuma as well. So one of them will have to go. They'll, one of them will definitely have to go. And if they switch to three at the back, then Aspeliquera, as you guys uh, must know, is very, very capable of playing the right side and back three. So one of those centre-backs is going to be made redundant. But the thing is, they're all at like a, a decent level such that it makes it hard to bring in another centre-back and say that this guy is going to improve the team by like, or is going to improve the defence by like 120%. And justify that over bringing in someone like Declan Rice. So it's just kind of kind of weird at the moment. And I'm assuming that's also probably why we haven't seen many rumours linking us with other centre-backs, except Rice. That's certainly a much more positive assessment of Declan Rice than you would get from any Manchester United fan. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> do you, I mean, do you know Rafe? What? Uh, our, our Raiders are not the best evaluators of <laughs> okay. central midfield talent, though. So. Yeah, I mean, they, they describe Declan Rice and will then describe one of the midfielders on our team. But, like, they'll, they'll describe him in a negative way, and then if you call them out on it, they'll, they'll probably tell you that, that the midfield on our team is, is very good. Well, mm. I, I feel as if I feel as if the time when Declan Rice was uh, most intensely linked to you guys, which is probably last summer, was when he was. Uh, I feel as if he's done a lot of develop developing as a player since then, because yes. when, when, I, when I watch him recent, I mean, in any of his recent games, as compared to when I watch most watched him the most before that, which is probably like last season or something, he seems to have come on in leaps and bounds. So that's uh, obviously a very good thing. So I think he's a. Uh, Maybe the time when he was linked with you guys was probably a little too early to be, doubt, I mean, speaking about him being signed for like, I don't know, 65, 75, 70 million or whatever. He was, he was linked with us during the lockdown at one point. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe your fan base prefers McTominay, but I mean, I really can't say. <laughs> let's, let's not use names here. <laughs> okay. Well, there, there is another defensive option, of course, Ben Chilwell, that theoretically has been linked to both clubs but Brendan Rodgers just recently came out and said he's not for sale so I, I they have no inclination to sell him I don't think that he'll be moving this summer smart even if someone like Frank Lampard really wants him but there are quite a few in compared to centre-backs because you probably you said not a lot of the centre-backs out there fully agree um but left-backs there are quite a few I don't know 
who you've been linked with, but we've been linked with, of course, Mitchell Will, like you have, but Tagliafico. Um, there's Robin Gosens, new name on that list, who's more wing back. Correct me if have I'm wrong. Have you been linked to Gosens? Really? Yeah, we, oh. yeah, we have, yeah. Uh, nice. Yesterday, yesterday, actually. Um, the first concrete link there. But of course, there's Tagliafico. There's also um, Alex Tellis, who's been fine form, scoring form this season. There are quite a few options then. It'd be very interesting to see who ends where, uh, because I can imagine that Manchester United will also be shopping the, in that area. Um, for me, it's Nicola Tagliafico from the, you know, what you get for that price, and he'd be a very, very good option there. Instead of shelling out 60 mil for 70 mil for Ben Chilwell, who's not really been too good these recent months. Yeah, I've I've seen a lot with uh, Tellez and Tagliafico. I think both of them are probably punching above their weight class in the leagues that they're in currently, and their agents are probably sending out feelers to see who's interested in them. But um, I, I've seen Tagliafico play more, and I would also definitely be a fan of uh, United making a move for him if that is on the cards. Yeah, I just... I just... I think left back at best is like our fourth priority. And I, I can't trust Ed Woodward to bring in more than three players in this window. So I feel like if we signed <laughs> a left back, it would come at the expense of somewhere else where we needed something. Oh, okay. So just, just because I heard what happened with Ed Woodward's house a few months ago, are you pro Edward, uh, Ed Woodward or against him because a lot of people were the same with Miranda Granovsky at Chelsea for a long time but in recent times she is very much in everyone's favour again uh, she's been doing fantastically and I think it's not as much the case with Woodward am I mistaken there? I mean I am certainly not like threatening a guy's house against Ed Woodward I think Ed Woodward does a very good job on the commercial side of the club. He sells sponsorships to so many things. He's bringing in so much money to the club. I think he does a very bad job on the football side of things. Um, and his background is not in football and he should not have as much of a say on the football side of things. And I think in, in the last year or so he's taken less of a role there, but it's still just, it seems like when it seems like he, they keep saying he's less involved in the in the negotiations now but then whenever you name a player it's oh Woodward took a personal stake into the uh, you know Woodward got personally involved in these negotiations and it's every player at this point he's getting personally involved and it it just seems like they can only do things one at a time and I don't understand why like they you could mock the Schweinsteiger and Schneiderlin signings because they didn't work out and those players didn't actually turn out to be good, but they got them done at the same time. So I don't understand why in the last few years now, it seems like Woodward can only do one thing at a time. Um, but yeah, I, I wish that they would have someone better on the football side, but re like he can keep doing what he does on the commercial side because he is really good at that. Yeah, and I, I think that Woodward 
absorbs a lot of the hate that is actually directed at the way that the Glazers run the club is there's this notion that Woodward is stingy with money, but really he does what he's told, you know. And um, they've spent a lot of money since. The yeah, Glazers we've also in. spent a lot of money. <laughs> um, Net spend, okay. I am pretty sure, is more than Chelsea. Yeah, and recent times definitely. Well, yeah. I mean, and granted, Chelsea. Chelsea get a lot of money from from selling all the players that they loan out. United have made in the last like four years almost nothing from player sales. So that's also what tilts the scales in United's favor. If it's United's favor. Mm. Well, I mean, we talk about the loan army, the Rams, the expert there. I don't know how many players we've been selling over the years and how much we've actually made profit-wise from that, but... Um, the only loan armies in the Premier League at this moment are Watford, Manchester City, and Brighton and Oval. Chelsea, from this day henceforth, shall not be known as the loan army club anymore, because we are selling them all off. <laughs> right. <laughs> but since since 2014, this does not include uh, Ziyech and, and everybody, but since 2014-15, Chelsea's net spend on just transfer fees was 195 million, and United's was 455 million. Because mm-hmm. Chelsea managed yeah. to Chelsea spent more. They spent 728 compared to 622, but they brought in 533. Partially, uh, that is partially helped out by selling Hazard for 100 million. But nevertheless, they've sold a lot of players. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. with that that number went really up top. What we spent. Because of that very dark summer of 217, 18, um, we spent 250 mil nearly, or between two and 250 mil for. I don't want to be nasty to them, but it was pretty garbage. <laughs> but, but I still they like. They did sell 107 million that summer, so we did. But you know, that wasn't like a crazy astronomical number. Sure, but you know, I mean, of course, the market situation always varies. But if you think about what money we spent back then, I think this is a, a song that you'll be singing yourself. We could have the purchase we're doing now. You think, oh, this is so intelligent. We're doing this so well. But then you have to think back. Why didn't we do it back then? Why did we buy mediocre players for such high sums where we still have a Danny Drinkwater on over 120 grand <laughs> per week? <laughs> It's 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 baffling. You know, I mean, if I ask myself the exact same question. <laughs> my my theory with Danny Drinkwater is that was just to make up for getting Conte for a steal at thirty million pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possible. That's a very big favor we're doing. We yeah. drunk draw. Oh, whatever. No, I'm not going to go into that. But it's uh, it's it's been a problem, and we are making amends now. That's the good thing. Well, just something that I wanted to ask you guys about to have your opinion on is, uh, well, both clubs are obviously going through a transition and bringing in young players at the same time. And quite frankly, United have, uh, obviously, Mason Greenwood has absolutely burst out onto the scene and has been beating the entire concept of expected goals with a large stick. And there is Brandon Williams who played, and I'm not sure if you guys see him as like a long-term option going forward, but I was a, it was a rather strange sight to see Timothy Fosomensa starting your previous Premier League match. So I, I think in, uh, in general, I feel as if you guys have a bit of a mishmash of uh, 
youth prospects because correct me if I'm wrong, Tuan Zibi has been in and around the squad. Fosu Mensa has, I don't know, I, I kind of forgot he was still at United until the last game. And there's Pereira who was who was playing, but then your, your fans don't seem to like him very much. I can't comment. Because he's garbage. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, we don't like him very much either. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, it's you're probably left with, like, Mason Greenwood and Brandon Williams. And I don't know. I think James Garner will probably go out on, like, go out on loan or something. But is there is there anyone else you expect to be a big part of the squad going forward? Um, I think Garner and Levitt, of... still in Levitt, should and uh, oh, Ted and Menji, the center back, That's uh, should be, should be. I think he's still two years away, but he should be in there going forward. Um, Twanzebi has been injured a lot this season. Whenever they seem to need him, he always seems to pick up an injury, like either in training right beforehand or in, or in the warm up. Um, Fosu Mensa got hurt at the end of last season and, and was just out forever. And I guess was hanging around the squad training with, he only returned to training a, a little, uh, I think in January. So it was, you know, it was hard to get a look in there because the defense was very set. Um, and then he gets the call last week because Solsar really does not rate Diogo Delo in the least bit. And <laughs> He rightly because Diogo Delote is pretty crap. Um, <laughs> okay. So Fosu Mensa got his chance. Um, but yeah, the the rest of the they they gave on Hel Gomez some chances this year. He didn't do anything with them, and now he's left. They've given Chong Ty well. Chong ch- chances. He hasn't done anything with them either. But he signed a new contract. But I don't expect much from him. I think other than the players that. That broke out. You've got James Garner, who hopefully will go on loan next year. Dylan Levitt's an exciting guy. Um, Ethan Laird, at, uh, the right back, is an right exciting back, guy. Yeah. Then they got then they got Men- Mengi. But you know, for for everybody that I just listed, there's always a few that aren't going to pan out, and then there's always going to be a few Brandon Williamses that just come out of nowhere and and <laughs> yeah. steal a spot on the team. He did kind of come out of nowhere, yeah. So. Uh, I guess I guess what you're saying is I think it might just be Greenwood and Williams for probably the foreseeable future, probably the next season or so, which is which is fine, obviously, because bringing in Greenwood in itself is uh, is probably going to prove very very beneficial to the team. So on that note, uh, Chelsea I think ended the game with all of Hudson Odoi, Abraham, Reese James, and Mount as well on the pitch. So we've used those guys in addition to Vikari Tomori, who didn't play that game, and Christensen, who also kind of counts as an academy graduate, despite the fact that he was signed from Frontby at 15. But uh, yeah, so my, my, my question, my next question to you guys was, what, what do you guys, I mean, your view will probably be a lot more objective than mine and probably even Jimmy's as well, but what do you make of the young players at Chelsea based on what you've seen this season? Do you think that do you think that some of them are kind of gonna disappear after a couple of years, maybe move on to like more mid-table Premier League clubs, or do you think that, or have you been impressed with a lot of them? Do you think that they'll play a big role at Chelsea? I'm kind of 
not sure about Tammy Abraham's longevity at Chelsea. Oh, you um, didn't just say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think he's got you know all the potential in the world. Um, I'm really interested to see how he and Timo Werner get into the side together or whether Timo Werner kind of pushes him out. Um, because I think Tammy Abraham is definitely good enough to start on a Premier League team. Um, but if Timo Werner comes in and plays as the number nine, I'm not sure, uh, and, you know, lives up to his potential as well. Uh, I'm not sure that Abraham gets that spot back. Um, but other I, than, was, yeah. I was so high on Tammy Abraham that I said last year, in January, they should have recalled him early from the loan and went with him rather than the ridiculous loan signing of Gonzalo Higuain. I thought there was no way that Abraham could have been worse than Higuain. And at best, you give him six months or five months, however much was left in the season, to settle into playing in the top flight so he's ready to hit the ground running this year. He did hit the ground running this year. But now I don't know what's happened to him. I don't, I don't know why he can't score anymore. And that's, yeah, now I have the same concern as Colin is what is his longevity at Chelsea going to be like I know there's a contract issue um, and you mentioned before Olivier Giroud becoming the third the best third choice striker well is he going to be a third choice striker is Giroud going to leave or is Tammy Abraham going to you know is Giroud going to get the call before Tammy Abraham does if he can't work well with Timo Werner Uh, it to me it doesn't seem like the team is big enough to have Giroud, Werner, and Abraham in it, and someone's going to leave. And, and the question is, you know, if Abraham can't get rediscover his goal scoring boots, will it be him? Yeah, fair enough. And what, what, what do you what do you make of the likes of Mason Mount and Reese James? Because they divide a lot of opinion yeah. among Chelsea fans. Although people have begun to warm up more to Mason Mount as of late, because he's been really good. And I thought he was he so. Kovacic was Jimmy's man of the match, but Mason Mount was mine. Maybe, maybe I'm biased, but yeah, Mason Mount and Reese James. What do you What do you guys make of those two? I like Reese James. Uh, it's hard because England have developed such good right backs all of a sudden out of so nowhere. So many. It's that, bad. You know, like it. I, I feel like he can be. He could be the third best right back in the world, but he'd still be the third best right back for his country. Um, at the rate that. <laughs> that players are developing. Um, you know, he could, um, Mason Mount, I, I think is a little overrated in that. I think he's a good player. I think Southgate and Lampard like him a little bit too much. He's, he's got to learn. He's got to learn to pass the ball a bit more. He, you know, he's a guy that just likes to fire away with the ball all the time. And I think if he learns how to, add some passing in and around the box to his game, it'll make him a little bit, it'll make him not a little bit, much more dangerous. Um, yeah, that's but, why David De Gea let that one pass him. He's trying to build up was, confidence too playing much. Playing the pass. So first at some point. He's too generous, too generous. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think he's, I don't think he's a bad player by any stretch of the imagination. I just think he's a little bit overrated. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see how he develops under Lampard because, of course, that's the sort of role that Lampard played as that, you know, attacking midfielder that, you know, it ideally contributes quite a few goals each season. 
of course, Frank Lampard contributed an enormous amount of goals each season. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I, I think that that's going to be an interesting relationship uh, uh, between Lampard and Mason Mount and seeing how his game sort of changes, especially now that they're bringing in so much other attacking pieces that are going to probably fit around Mason Mount instead of replacing him. I just have to say, Paulie, I was really starting to like you. Such a shame. Such a shame. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> now, I, as as Ralph said, he splits the opinions, and it's quite interesting to see that it's the same uh, with uh, other fan bases that aren't Chelsea supporters. But um, yeah, Mason Mount was up there. Just just to add to that, Ram. Even though I thought Kovacic was the man of the match for me, Mason Mount was a very, very close second at the very best, uh, at the very least. So, um, yeah, I think that he also still has a lot of room for improvement. So it will be interesting to see him next uh, next season. Yeah, sure, sure. And well, I have um, I've had a very, very complicated dynamic with Manchester United as a club because I I grew up basically surrounded by a number of kids who were basically all Man United fans because they were all like massive Cristiano Ronaldo stands but uh, yeah so I that's that's kind of why I started supporting Chelsea basically because everyone supported Manchester United and it just so happened what a a blow for Arsenal (laughs) (laughs) indicative of the era yeah (laughs) Yeah, actually, actually, I, when I when I started supporting Chelsea, I had no idea that they actually won titles in like 2004 and 2005. I was like 10 years old and it was just like the nice team in blue. That was basically it. But anyway, what what I was um, what I was getting at is we, we happen to be locked into a top four race, which hasn't been as I mean, it seems as if it's as close as it has been in the last few years. I don't think Man United and Chelsea specifically have been this close. To competing against each other for like a top four place in the last few years for whatever reason, and I I just I just want to know what you guys think uh, will be the end result of the table probably because at this point at this point maybe it's uh, kind of straightforward because Leicester are more or less in free fall that's like Brendan Rodgers is kind of doing his thing so. Leicester are uh, on a bit of a decline, but Chelsea also looked as if they were faltering a bit, but then you guys had favourable results from our perspective. So, yeah, it's uh, it's still it's still pretty tight. Chelsea and United are on 36 games each. Leicester is on 37. United and Leicester are on 62. We are on 63. And uh, we've, got, we've got Liverpool and Wolves left to play, which are not easy games at all. So, I don't know. It could, uh, obviously, one out of the three teams is going to miss out. So, who do you think that's going to be? I mean, personally, I think it's going to be Leicester because... It's going to be Leicester. <laughs> okay. I mean, if United don't make the top four, it's a colossal F up at this point. <laughs> they just need to draw two games. I mean, if they draw if they draw West Ham, they go a point above Leicester and then you go to Leicester and you just need to get a draw and Leicester... Okay, you're actually playing Leicester, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, so it'd be a colossal F up if they can't 
if they don't pull it off. Chelsea are tough. I mean, Liverpool have been playing like they're hungover for the last three weeks, as they have been, but they're raising the trophy tomorrow, and I have a very good friend who's a Liverpool supporter, and um, he's basically been like, I haven't been concerned about the crap performances for the last two weeks, but if they can't get their game right when they're raised, on the day they're raising the trophy, like that's a concern. And and Wolves are one of those really tough matchups for Chelsea because they'll they're very good defensively. Chelsea will have a lot of the ball, and Wolves are very good on the counter. And that's kind of where it's it's been those types of games where Chelsea have struggled. But it's it's just it's it's hard to see anybody other than Leicester missing out. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way. Um, I'm I'm kind of hesitant to give specifics about what I think will happen because I don't want the worst case scenario to become real as you know, the fear in the back of my mind is always keeping that alive, but it's really hard to see Manchester United messing this up at this point. Um, I, I could see maybe Lester beating us, but if you know, we beat West Ham tomorrow, which is seems more than likely it probably won't matter. So yeah, uh, I'll. I guess I'll say, United finished third, Chelsea finished fourth. I can live with that. I, just, I I I don't know how you feel about that, Ram, but I I don't care if we get come fourth. Of course, there's a bit of pride in play here, but it's all about us just securing that Champions League football and. Yeah. That's right. It. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like I very much want to finish third, but if we. You know, I'm not going to shed any tears if we finish fourth. Yeah. All right. Uh, Polly and I were, are from the Busby Babe. So uh, if you're listening to this on We Ain't Got No Podcast and you are interested in Manchester United for some reason, you know, <laughs> check out our work <laughs> and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colin the Shots 95. And I'm at P Questel. That's P K W E S T E L. I've got some very hot takes out there. <laughs> he also has an agenda against Scott McTominay, so. Yeah, I, oh, I don't. Guy, my guy, I'm following you right now. <laughs> I don't. I don't pretend that McTominay is a better player than he actually is. Yeah, you're getting along very well with Ram about that. Yeah, and for everyone from the Busby Brave, of course, listening, visit us at We Ain't Got the History. Uh, if you want to. Maybe in some schadenfreude after Chelsea lost, maybe, or if you want to just contribute to the discussions, we're very open, or most of us are, uh, to discussing with other blogs, fans as well. And drop us a follow on Twitter. Uh, the links will be in the description below for We Ain't Got No Podcast. 